This is an ABC podcast. Catherine Raven has almost always lived alone. Things were not good in her family home and she left at 15. She found work as a park ranger in the wilds of Yellowstone National Park and in other spots in America's northwest and eventually did a PhD in biology. Catherine bought an isolated plot of land in Montana, a place known as Big Sky Country. And she built herself a tiny cabin there, far away from everyone and everything. But then one day, a fox turned up. It turned up the same time the next afternoon, and the next, and all the days after. Catherine had been trained to look at nature with a scientific and dispassionate mind, and she was very used to relying on her own company. So no one was more surprised than her when she realised that she and the fox were becoming friends, and that the relationship mattered to her more than anything else in the world. Her book is Fox and I, An Uncommon Friendship. Hi, Cathy. Hi. This this property of yours in Montana, what does it look like at the moment? Well, the most important thing here has always been like this since I came and, and will always be the case, I'm sure, is the big sky. Not only are the clouds such an enormous part of your life here, the colors of the clouds, it's not just the shape, but it's the colors. When you see the sunrise and the sunset, so often it's a pink or an orange or something that looks like an ice cream opal. It's solid white, solid uh, pink, some blue in it, opaque colors. And we have skies that look like that. How common are rainbows in your part of the world? This is absolutely rainbow country. And what's interesting here is that I can see both ends of the rainbows. That's how open the country is. So I see from end to end of the rainbow and double rainbows, they're not unusual at all. So I might see one rainbow start and then another one right over its head. And again, I'm seeing both ends of the rainbow. This is absolutely the place you want to be. And I never get tired (laughs) of watching the rainbow, which is odd because, of course, I've seen hundreds of of rainbows, but it still stops me. And I still spend a moment and and take that time and, and watch the rainbows. It's summertime there now. What's it like in winter? <laughs> well, winter will be starting uh, next month in September. We will be getting a lot of snow, but maybe not more than three feet staying on the ground at worst part of it. But it drifts because we do have wind And when there's wind, it just kind of gets a wild hair to go wherever it wants. And sometimes it goes a place where it's never been before. So suddenly you have six feet of snow in one spot. Of course, an acre will be just scoured because the wind has picked up all the snow from the ground and piled it all up in one place. This is such a soft snow. This is why it's fox country. All wildlife, I suppose, like the soft snow. You can walk through it and it just blows aside. In the winter, we get a really powdery snow, a really lovely light snow that's real easy on animals. One of the things you wear to keep warm in that weather are mucklucks, if I'm saying that correctly. What are mucklucks? Mucklucks are, my mucklucks, by the way, are all moose hide. I only wear moose hide mucklucks. And the interesting thing about mucklucks, what you need to know about them is that they don't have a right or a left. And maybe it sounds strange, but that's what keeps them warm. And that's what distinguishes a muckluck from a moccasin, for example. So muckluck, you grab them and you don't have to worry about which foot goes in where because they're the same shape. And you do try to balance them out when you're watching what you're doing so that they don't form to your right or left foot. And and they keep you warm because they're not tight. And then you wear shoes over them? No, no, no. Muckluck is the shoe. So they've got a very, very thick bottom and they're moose hide and you tie them across in front of yourself. They're loose so that you can wear lots of uh, heavy socks in there, but then you tie them. There's rawhide going around them. So you tie them up so that they fit nice and snug. They're light 
and they grip really well on ice. So you can just run on a frozen lake with them. And they come in different heights. So I have some that are low to the ground, just ankle height ones that I might wear in the summertime. And then I have mid-calf ones. And then I have ones that come all the way up over my knee. And they roll down. So I can roll them down below my knee if I want to or roll them up again. I, I have many pairs and I can't imagine surviving without mucklucks. And you know, the folks that mush the dogs in Alaska, they were mucklucks also. And pretty much everybody working all winter in Yellowstone Park are wearing something similar to um, mucklucks. So you live up in this this high alpine desert, this 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 high valley. How, how long does it take for you to get to the nearest shops where you might get food or, or other supplies? Well, it's about 65 miles round trip to get your uh, milk or whatever you need to get your groceries. I have to drive even to get my mail. We don't have mail delivery here. So it's about 14 miles round trip to get postal. I do drive to the dump stations with my trash, drive for the post office and drive for the grocery. But I don't have to drive too often. I try to do all that at the same time, which means I might only be picking up my mail every 10 days or so. The fact that this this place was so far from other people, Kathy, was that part of the appeal when you bought the land? Well, I didn't really want to be apart from people, but I wanted to be apart from the things that people seem to get rid of. That's the problem. I like it quiet and I wanted, you know, wildlife and beautiful things. If you could have people around and still have all those things, it would be wonderful. It's just that when you have people around and the the cars and the noise and the dogs and the cats, it seems to chase off some of the other things that that I really like a lot, the, the wild animals and the wild country, being able to see on the horizon both sides. You know, I can see the sun setting at the same time the moon is rising. And so I can actually, and that's really wonderful to be able to see the horizon that far in both hmm. east and west so far. And, and of course, there's mountains here because it's a valley I love having mountains around and not ha- and being able to see them and not having buildings. And that's the problem when you have a lot of people. And if people turn lights on at night, then you can't see the night sky. And the night sky is simply unbelievable. Just really fantastic in a place where it's just pitch black at night. Was there a house on the land when you bought it? Oh, no. It was just naked land. There's nobody. So my house is the first permanent structure that's ever been on this property. Where did you sleep at first? Oh, I had my tent here. And I was used to that because, of course, I'd been a ranger for a long time. And there is a spring here, a well and a spring. So there was water. Of course, I didn't have electricity, but I had water. I had a tent and that was fine. I didn't mind too much. It's chilly, but it's chilly anyway. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't, I wasn't too concerned. It didn't really take too long to build the house because it's such a tiny little cabin. It's really only one room on the bottom and, and one room on the top. The bottom floor is built into the hillside. So it's very energy efficient and there's lots of glass all the way around And the nice thing about living in a place where everybody buys their own land and puts up their own house is that everybody's place looks different. And I think it it helps people feel really private and isolated because they're not track houses. It's not neighborhood, but more like just private people living in a valley. Well, your neighbors are animals, the animals of this spot. What were the first, some of the first animals you encountered when you moved The ones that were most noticeable were the magpies. They wanted me to know right off the bat that they were in charge, they were here first, and I really wasn't welcome. (laughs) And they absolutely took exception to a new individual showing up on their property completely uninvited, and it wasn't really clear to them what advantage I was going to be to them. I tried really hard to get along with the magpies, but... They were pretty recalcitrant. And I understood finally it took a long time that they've had a tough relationship with people. 
it's just in their DNA going back generations of having problems with humans. And they're just not going to make an exception. And I suppose we are trouble. We have been trouble. Yes. Our Australian magpies are different from Montana magpies. Our, our magpies here aren't real magpies. Uh, they're a native bird that they don't belong to the same COVID family. But Australian magpies sing beautifully. Do, do the ones in Montana do that? No. <laughs> and the ones here are called pika pika, by the way, and they make a horrendous amount. Fairly large birds, too. If I didn't dislike them so much, I would probably think they were beautiful. But it's really, I mean, and they are beautiful, actually. I mean, they have a kind of a diamond shaped tail that's very long, and the colors kind of glisten. I mean, I want to be, I want to get along with them, but they really don't like me. And they still stomp on my roof. I mean, they just, they just make a lot of racket. What large mammals turn up at your place? There's always deer here. There, an elk comes through a couple times a year, but elk are not here year-round. Um, it depends on the weather for them. But the deer are always here. They never seem to leave, and they'll be right up on the, the doorstep. Even with the little ones, they'll be really close. And, of course, the, there's always skunks here. And badgers are pretty close. They're not always on my property, but they're very close by. Lions are here. I see them every once in a while. Usually I have to walk up the hill or down the way, but they're, they're always around. You're never far out of the way of lions. Last year, there were a couple of grizzlies on the lane. There's usually people injured and bumping into grizzlies, I would say within five mile radius, pretty much every fall somebody bumps into one. And then of course, foxes, always foxes here. What about a, a smaller animal, the vole? What is a, a oh vole my goodness. and what role does it play on your <laughs> land? Voles look, they're microtines. People think they're mice and they they look a lot like mice that are just sort of missing a lot of the important parts, like the ears and the tail and the eyes. <laughs> really? <laughs> they look really like a baked potato more than <laughs> a mouse. They live in a much higher density than, than mice will tolerate. And not only that, they're out all the time. Mice seem to scurry out of people's way, but the voles, they're out all day long. They just run right over my feet. <laughs> they have absolutely no shyness at all. And huge, the density here was so high at one point that a vole, a dam, a female, jumped on my leather boot and gave birth while I was walking. I, I don't think there was any other room for her. I mean, it was so crowded. And I looked down and she gave birth to two little voles then left them on my boot. Was it this banquet of voles that first attracted the fox that would become your fox? Yes, he was smart enough and patient enough because at first he wasn't able to eat the voles that I had on my property because I let these weeds grow up around the vole habitat and it protected them. The weeds were woody and they were thorny not native plants and not what Fox was used to, but he couldn't leap and then dive down into this mass of thorny weeds because he would get impaled and, and it was thick and it was very unpleasant. So he had to wait, but he saw that I was trying. He saw me out there with my tools. It was taking me forever because I didn't know what I was doing and it was very inefficient. And I, I also had a job. I, had to, I was teaching online. I couldn't just clear property for him all day. I'm sure he got very frustrated watching me. But he was patient and he knew that after I got rid of these weeds, there would be all those voles with nothing protecting them. And he would wait on the edge. If I even cleared one weed away and a vole went running out, the fox would pounce on it. So he was just, he was waiting for those voles this fox is attracted to all these little eyeless, earless, tailless rodents running about. Then what happened one afternoon to, to really change the dynamic and start a new kind of relationship between you and this wild animal? Our relationship absolutely changed. Something very important happened and completely unplanned. I was sitting outside 
with a big scab on my knee. Well, that wasn't unusual. I always have scabs on my knees. And there was a fly, a house fly. He was buzzing around on that scab and I was blowing on it to try to get rid of it. And the fly was very persistent. So it would disappear for a second, swing around a few laps and then land back on my knee again on the scab, playing with the fresh blood on the scab. And then I just stopped trying to get rid of it and started staring at it. And I just had my head down and watching this fly playing on my knee scab. And I was so focused on it. And then I looked up and that fox was like an arm's length away. And I don't think he, I felt like he didn't know I was there. He was looking at that fly. He was looking at the same fly that I was. We were both just fascinated with this house fly playing in a scab. And finally he looked, we locked eyes and he did something so significant to let me know that he wanted to make contact with me. He put his nose down because otherwise if he kept his nose up or his face straight, it would have kind of blocked us from seeing eye to eye. His snout would have blocked us. We turned his nose down. I remember seeing his sleek, sleek, sleek snout, but we were eye to eye. Our eyes are like the same width apart. And when he's on all fours and I'm sitting and I'm, I'm really small, I'm only five feet tall. When I'm sitting and he's standing, our eyes are the same height from the ground too. So we were almost exactly eye to eye. That's an incredible feeling. If you think back on your life and how many times you've been eye to eye that close, that long, just seconds going by with a human being, you probably haven't been very much. It's, it's really odd to stare into some other individual's eyes for that long. And that just, and of course I could have just reached out and wrung his little neck and he could have taken his paw and scrapped it across my face and I would have been injured very badly. And we trusted, there there was just never a thought that he, to me, that he was dangerous. And I guess he never thought that I was dangerous. What happened next? I wanted him to stay with me And I instinctively reached into my pocket and started pulling out all kinds of trinkets. They're all natural trinkets, except for the brass shells for my rifle. They're all pretty much natural rocks, geodes, feathers, seeds. And I started tapping them on the wooden steps, just like a show and tell. And he was very interested in them, especially the feathers, of course, because he's a fox. And he was just sniffing them and looking at them. And I moved away so that he could spend some time with my trinkets. And I realized that would attract him. So when I saw him coming by the next day at 4.15, I was out with my little trinkets. But then that (laughs) got boring for a while and I didn't know how to keep him around. You started reading the story, The Little Prince to the Fox. How did that begin? The reading was instinctive again on my part. Of course, I would normally be outside reading to myself, but a real book, not The Little Prince. I would be reading maybe a science book, something something that would not be appropriate for a fox. I got The Little Prince out because I thought I could tolerate reading that out loud to him. And I fell into a pattern that was really natural, although I think it's natural, perhaps not human nature, perhaps nature because I was teaching college students, it was natural for me to read for a while and paraphrase as well. And I would hold up the book to show it to him just as though I was doing a slideshow with students. So I'm used to doing a visual and talking, but what What I was also used to with my students was that I would stop from time to time and I would count in my head to 15. It's just the way that I lecture to students because if you just keep lecturing, then they don't get a chance to think and ask questions. So I'm used to that give and take and I just did that with the fox. Then I would be quiet 
and I would stare right at him and count in my head. And he understood exactly what was going on. He understood that that was his time, that it was his turn. But of course, he couldn't talk, but it didn't matter that he couldn't talk. He knew that we were, we were communicating. And he knew that when I was reading out loud and then looking up at him and holding pictures at him, he knew I wasn't just sitting there reading to myself. He knew I was communicating with him. And it's interesting that two animals that don't speak the same language and are very far, very different species can understand that we're communicating with each other. But he absolutely did. How far away would he be from you when you were reading The Little Prince and holding it up? Then he was was about four metres away when I was on um, the steps. And when I would sit, um, try to find a place to sit closer, I might have been three metres. He always had the spot where he wanted to sit. He chose a spot that was near this one flower, this one forget-me-not, and he liked to have his nose right where that forget-me-not was, and it allowed him to face me. And then I would sit in different places and never, I was always just trying to find a comfortable place to sit. I never really did find it. He always had this comfortable spot where there wasn't any bunch grass or any rocks. It was all cleared just nice soft dirt. And then there was this flower by his nose. So he had the perfect place to sit and I'd be rolling around with rocks under my butt (laughs) and all this thorn sticking up through my butt and everything. And he's just, he was just so comfortable staring at me and trying to figure out why I couldn't figure out where to sit. What did he look like? Well, he's very tiny. He was even small for a fox. And I am thinking he weighed about six pounds. When the wind would blow his hair out of the way and you could actually see his body, it was, he was really tiny uh, and he was mute. So he, he was, was certainly the runt. Yeah. He couldn't talk. He couldn't make any uh, sounds at all. And so I think that he was the runt of his litter. He would go like that. He would open his mouth and that's the only sound that would come out. It's a little mechanical sound, like a little dying duck, like like that. That's all he could say. What color was he? He had a lot of gray and blonde in him, so not a blaze-colored red. They're called red foxes, of course. And they're all red foxes everywhere in the world. Same species, Volpez. Volpez have white tips on their tails. That's a diagnostic characteristic of a red fox. And they also have black on their forelegs, like little boots that they're wearing. So black legs, black forelegs, and uh, white tip tail. But the rest of a red fox varies. And so some of them, of course, are very red, orange, bright, rust-colored or bright orange, uh, like his mother was bright orange. He was also had a lot of blonde in him in addition to the gray. I think the fact that he wasn't blaze-colored is one reason why he was so... I mean, there's lots of reasons why he was so friendly. And I think that, you know, maybe one in a thousand foxes would be as friendly as him. But a blaze fox, I think, would have the instinct not to get near humans because, of course, their pelt has been worth so much more money that in order for them to survive, they have probably learned that people are the enemy because people would have, you know, been shooting them to sell their pelts. Not as many people would be anxious to shoot a fox that was a grayish blonde, I think. So that he's probably didn't inherit as much fear as a, a redder colored fox, a brighter colored fox. About two weeks into this this burgeoning relationship of of spending afternoons in each other's company. You suddenly thought that you needed to ditch him, that you shouldn't be doing this. Why not? I realized this is a taboo. I knew it from having a doctorate in biology. And I knew it from the years I worked in the park service, that it just seemed to be not so much a science as a cultural taboo. And my colleagues really would be really unhappy if they thought that I was chatting with a fox or had a fox in my social circle and hanging around with a fox. Anthropomorphism is considered just absolutely the worst thing. Just assuming that a fox has a personality that 
we really restrict to humans that has traits that are only supposed to belong to people. And I think that's getting broken down slowly. But if it's getting broken down, perhaps by some research scientists or cultural anthropologists, well, that kind of information isn't getting to the public, isn't getting to my students, isn't getting to people who are teaching botany classes or zoology classes at a, at a university. That's sort of a more esoteric group of people that might be saying, okay, it's time to start breaking down the barriers of what we thought were the limits of animal personality. But the general public certainly still believe that anthropomorphism is something that absolutely should be avoided by by educated people and and that it's childish also we all know that children's books have animals in them that have personalities and then suddenly you become an adult for me it was embar- you know i just knew this was wrong i just that this fox couldn't possibly that i was just imagining it and I worry that people are passing by opportunities all the time to be close to animals, whether it's a coyote or a fox or a skunk or deer, because they think the same thing. And they kind of maybe think that that deer is looking at them and then they say, no, 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 no. And they walk away because they just can't believe it. Or they're too busy, I suppose, also, and they don't want to take the time. On air, online, and on the ABC Listen app, this is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. As the days went by and you were spending more and more time together, did you give the fox a name? I just called him Fox. I really felt like we were equals. And so the name, you know, for me to take control over him and give him a name just would seem more like I was in charge, I suppose. And I never really did feel in charge of the relationship. In fact, I felt that he dogged me around. I felt that he wanted the relationship and that he was in charge of the relationship more than I was. And, you know, I wasn't feeding him. And I really didn't ever think of him as a pet. I felt like we were really two equals. I never reached out and and touched him. Just, you know, I mean, if you and I were having lunch somewhere, some, somewhere, I wouldn't just reach out and touch your hair. We don't do that with people. It's massively disrespectful and rude. And, and just treating him with respect just seemed so natural. Once it seemed like we were going to have a relationship, it was a relationship of equals. So it wasn't that you were trying to train him then? (laughs) Well, I was hoping, but I was dissuaded of that pretty early. I thought that I could be in charge because I because he's a fox and I, and I had things to do and I thought how convenient I'll just get him to come by when I'm done with my schoolwork, my online work and uh, dinner time, maybe six o'clock would be great for me, (laughs) but he had just other plans. He had his day planned for the heat and the sun. And when the sun was down, as soon as the West sun, which is the really strong, the real strong sun, the heat of the day, he wanted it not in his eyes, but he wanted to take advantage of the ground that the sun had heated. So he needed to be in this spot when the ground was really warm, but he had to wait until the sun just went down below the hill so that it wouldn't be in his eyes. He was very particular. I mean, he just, he was determined to have things the way he 
to make life as good as possible, the optimum habitat for himself. And that extended to getting you to do certain things that worked for him. Tell me about the lovely rare cactus plant that you you planted (laughs) at your front steps. It was so tiny and I really loved the little cactus. And because it was so tiny and I figured he could ease, I mean, what difference would it make to a fox, this little tiny cactus, but it was so cute and it has these really bright fuchsia flowers and I wanted it next to the steps so I could watch it when it bloomed, a little barrel cactus. So I planted it there, but he didn't want anything different and I didn't have his permission. He came by and he put his little claw right in that cactus and he glared at me. He just this one little claw just sitting there and he glared until he made eye contact with me long enough to where he thought I had gotten the message and he left. And then he didn't come back for the 415 meeting the next day, our rendezvous. And I thought, no, it can't possibly be because of it. There's just, but I knew he was upset about that cactus. I mean, I, I would have to be a moron not to have understood. He made it really clear. He did not like the cactus that I put in. He, he never even sat in that spot. <laughs> I have eight acres. But anyway, I got up in the middle of the night and it was snowing. And I went out and dug up the cactus and put it in a pot and brought it in the house. And then the next day he was back at 4.15, <laughs> just like nothing had happened. And I realized I was gardening for him. And he knew that. about. I mean, I think he knew that I would be a really convenient friend. Um, Besides the fact that he knew that friends are convenient in the first place, that it's really dopey to just be living by yourself. (laughs) He knew I'd be a great partner because I have these hands and I have these tools and I can do things that he can't do. And digging up cactus is, is one of them. Did he ever bring you food, Kathy? Oh my goodness. He, I think he felt sorry for me. I think from playing games with me, from playing chicken, for example, he knew that I didn't have really sharp teeth. And he knew that I was happy. He watched me try to kill this mouse in the garage. It was a gimpy mouse too. It was handicapped and I still couldn't kill it. And I think he he must have thought that I was, I was trying to get it out of my garage because I don't want mice having babies in my garage. I wasn't trying to eat the mouse, but he, he was watching me and he must have thought I was trying to capture the mouse so that I could eat it. So he shows up with the dead vole and tries to drop it on my feet the next day. And I, I absolutely, I had bare feet. I did not want a dead rodent on my feet. I don't want a live or a dead rodent on my feet. That was the one time when he looked back at me and he was really, he finally got the message that I was really upset and did not want that animal at all. I was backed up against the door at one point, just standing on my tippy toes because I was trying to make my feet as small as possible. And he kept trying to drop it and I kept trying to put my hand and block him. And finally, he took his little dead thing and he walked away, but he stopped and he looked back at me over his shoulder. And I just can't believe that people will tell you that a fox doesn't have a personality. (laughs) I mean, when he stopped and looked back over my shoulder, he was so hurt. I mean, he had brought me some food and I wouldn't take it. And for him to stop, and look back at me with that dead thing, it, he definitely, we share a lot more traits with animals than we have had time to think about in the last hundred years. I suppose people probably knew this 200 years ago or more, but our modern civilization, I think we have forgotten how closely related we are to other animals and how similar to us that they are because we've changed the way we've lived so much. But when we used to live on the ground or in smaller houses or in mobile houses, I think we spent a lot more time with animals. So it must have been obvious. And when we don't travel on the ground with animals, we don't walk or ride horses. We are in cars. And so we don't see them when we're zipping down the highway at 110 miles an hour. And we don't really spend as much time with them. You said that you and and Fox played chicken together. What do you mean? I decided to play that with Fox when I saw him doing his yoga poses one day. He liked to stretch and stretch on the ground. And 
I got down on all fours and faced him and decided that we would play chicken and we would get closer and closer to each other. And the one of us that turned away or stood up first was the chicken. So I did that, but then he opened his mouth and it's like big enough to fit my entire head. And he has 42 really, really sharp teeth. And so I moved back a little bit and then he moved forward. And I was thinking about all the times I would see him pick up a mouse or a vole and he would do one chomp and the mouse would just be severed right in half with just boom, one chomp, just like that. And I thought about how sharp those teeth must be. So I moved back a little bit further and then he came forward again. So I stood up. And <laughs> every time we I was the chicken. I was always the chicken. Every time we played, he liked playing chicken, but he realized he could get closer and closer to me and then I would eventually stand up. And he he definitely liked to win. I figured that out. What was the um, other the other game you played? Yes, we played hide the egg. I would bring an egg out, leave it on the ground near him, and then back away. He picked up the egg and he ran off and hid it. And, but, you know, I can see the sun rise at the same time I can see the moon set. So I can see him, but there's little, you know, there's plants and such. So I couldn't see exactly, but I figured this is an easy game. I mean, I can see which direction he went. So then he would come back and I would go try to get the egg. And I figured, he buried it so I would be able to see ground that had been freshly dug up. And I couldn't find the egg as easy as I thought I could. So I started getting more advanced. I brought a compass out one day and I figured I would take a bearing on him. And I had the declination set even. Get this compass and I would see exactly where he was going. And then I would keep walking on that line until I ran into a place where an egg had been buried. And still I couldn't find the egg. I think he must have gone back in the evenings and dug them up and put them on the other side of the house because all the eggs were on the other. I found them when I was planting things. They were always on the other side of the house than where he ran. He always ran north and I found all the eggs on the south, but he's very clever, very clever. People are used to the experience of taking walks with their dogs. Did you and Fox take walks together? Yes. We took walks together in different ways. Sometimes I was ahead and sometimes he was, but he would always pad pretty close to me. And then if he saw or smelled something that he wanted, a mouse or a vole, then I might sit and wait while he hunted. If he didn't want me around, I figured he, because he's so fast, if he didn't want me around, he could just run really fast and get away from me. So as long as he tolerated having me around, I figured he wanted me to walk with him. And so I stayed with him. I always let him leave first. I just felt that was the way to gain his trust and to be polite. And so I gave him whatever time he wanted. And as long as he stayed close to me, if I walked a couple miles down towards the river, down to the river, if he followed either just behind me or just ahead of me and never ran away, I just kept staying with him. But we walked a lot together. We walked up in the hills. I walked him up to his den quite a lot. And uh, he liked he liked having another individual around him. Again, I th- thought I was useful. I would, you know, would scare dogs away and he figured out that I don't like feral cats and he did not like he did not like feral cats. I don't think any foxes like feral cats. I guess that's the enemy. I think he noticed even before he started coming around, deciding to be my friend, I think he noticed besides the voles and the fact that I had these tools that were really useful, I think he noticed me throwing rocks at feral cats. So he knew I didn't like cats, feral ones. I I like cats, pet cats, you know, but not the wild ones that go around killing everything in sight. You even went walking together at night. And and one night when you were waiting for Fox outside under the moon, he bought something to show you. Well, that night is my image in my mind, really, if you're going to say 
do you love this fox? Do you think the fox loves you? And love isn't a word that I like to use for any relationship, not not a human human relationship even. It's a really fuzzy word. It's a nebulous word. And I use it to describe things like my mukluks and the Chinese dinner I went out for last month and things like that. So it seems weird to say, I love that meal and I love you. I mean, it just doesn't fit. But I do think that if you have this trust, this trust and this joy, then I think you can put those two things together and say, well, I suppose that's as as good of a definition of love as anybody's going to have. He brought four kits, baby foxes, kits, down to my house in the moonlight. And I felt that was the maximum amount of trust that any individual could express for another. He didn't just bring them down and babysit them and not let them near me. He brought them down right to my feet and then he backed away and curled up and pretended to be sleeping and let me babysit them. What's really amazing about the kids, they weren't really reacting to me at all. They were so wild right in front of me. They were rolling with each other. They were in and out of this slough, which is like a ditch, is dry. And they were on one side and on the other, just up and down in the slough. But the grasses were higher than their heads. That was the most amazing thing. When they got into the grasses in front of me, I never knew exactly where they were until they stood up, not stood up, but, you know, on their hind legs and on just their back legs and sat up, in other words. And then their heads would come up higher than the grass. And I would see these heads popping up and then coming down and then popping up and coming down in different places. And there were four of them. And it seemed like their heads were popping up and coming down and popping up. And it was so amazing. And I really had no no senses at all except visual, which is really amazing. I mean, I just, I don't remember anything except what I saw that night. I don't remember what it smelled like or if the wind was blowing just seeing those little fox heads bopping up and down and up and down and up and down. It was just magical. And I did look over at him and try to get his attention, but he just, I mean, he doesn't like to do my, I mean, my job. I mean, he figured why should, he's been running around chasing him probably for a month or five weeks. And so he figured why should he, when he finally gets a chance to sleep and he knew that it was my job, you know, that I would do it and that I would keep track of them and make sure that the weasels and the cats uh, didn't get to them. And that's what I did. I babysat them while he was there, while he just laid there and let me do all the work. But just, I loved that night so much. And I've not really had another night that special. And then, of course, it made me, when I got in the house later that night, I just realized that weird feeling I had was joy. And later I thought to myself, joy and trust, when I have an image in my mind, I immediately, that image comes to mind of those four little kids playing around in the moonlight. It just, like in an instant, your self-esteem just suddenly comes into existence and it doesn't really ever disappear again. From that moment on, you're the person that this fox trusted and you never, nobody will ever take that away from you. You were away from home teaching on a field trip at Yellowstone National Park when you heard there was a wildfire in your valley and you needed to evacuate urgently. What happened? You know, I'd been evacuated before, but I didn't have a a house on my property when I was evacuated before. And I sadly, and I still feel bad about this, I was feeling a lot of things, but I, I had forgotten about Fox. I'll never get over that. That's the worst thing I've ever done. I forgot about him. I was frantic because not so much because I had a house, but because of the land itself. I wasn't really thinking my house will burn and things inside it will burn because I really didn't own anything. It's just that the land was mine. And once land burns, it's completely different land. The trees and, the, and your plants turning to black ash, that just frightened me so much and made me so sad. And unfortunately, the, there were structures burning by the time 
I started heading towards my property because I was in the park. It was 30 miles away. There were structures burning. And when structures burn, they put up this awful smoke, this, this, this smoke that I recognize, this dark black smoke. And I could see it rising up over this one mountain. And it was early in the day, like 11 o'clock in the morning. And when you see a column going 3,000 feet up and it's that hour of the morning, you just know something terrible is happening. So I was frantic and I started crying. I'm in a column like that. So I was just lucky. Mine was the lowest one and it didn't burn, but I was just frantic and I forgot all about him. I just com- completely forgot about him. Terrible thing. Why was it a terrible thing you did, Kathy? Because what could you have done if you had remembered? I what know. could you have done? You know, I don't, I, I wonder if I wouldn't have stayed. I mean, it's what would the police or the, sh- I mean, the sheriff was, you know, would the sheriff have handcuffed me and made me leave? I don't, I mean, we were under evacuation orders. Would, I just don't, you know, I wonder if I wouldn't have stayed um, because I think he probably stayed for quite a while. I don't know. I suppose because there, you know, he's not a pet, you're limited in what you can do. But just the fact that I didn't even think about him was a terrible thing. But you're right. I suppose there's not a lot you could have done, but I think I probably would have stayed. And when I went back to the house to empty it out, I probably would have walked up to the den. I should—I mean, it wasn't safe up there. That's the direction the fire was coming from. But I think I would have. I should have. It seems like that's what you do for a friend, right? Then put him, you know, I, I wouldn't have grabbed him. I mean, I don't know that he would have let me grab him. I've never grabbed him before. And what, put him in my car? I probably would have tried. When it was safe for you to go back a few days after, the kits were there, the, the vixen were there, but there was no, no sign of Fox. Did you ever find out what had happened to him? I think the fact that the vixen and the kits were there meant that they left. They left on time and so they were okay. You know, the problem with a fire and an animal like a fox They really can't see at all. Humans can barely see, but they also can't smell. So they have no sense of smell because the smoke is so thick in the air. So they have no vision and no smell. And worst of all for a fox is the the hearing. Because remember, there's helicopters in the air and there's fire engines and there's a tremendous amount of noise. It must have been the worst Armageddon for a fox to have all his vision, all his smell, and all his hearing taken away from him. It must have been just a a terrible thing. I'm sure the vixen and the kits got out as soon as the first helicopter or the first fire truck. And I think the vixen might have even taken off when when she smelled smoke. But she got out in time with the little ones. That's That's the thing. What does the spot look like where he used to sit? What does it look like now? I still have his little um, rock. It's the rock that he used to sit on. That's still there. The forget-me-not is still there. I try to keep it clean, but I gave up after a while. And I now there's um, so birds use it some of the time. But I've kept his little rock out in front, of course. No other fox has come and stood on it. Uh, He stood on it as soon as I brought it home. The very first day I brought that back, he he jumped up on it and it was his from then on. Do you imagine that you'll ever have another friendship with a wild animal like you had with fox? I do. It, It won't be easy, but I'm open to it. And I have tried with other foxes, but it hasn't worked. I mean, they haven't run fast away from me, but they also haven't come, they haven't made eye contact. They haven't come close and looked eye to eye with me like that. And that's that's what you have to achieve. And it's difficult. And there, I don't think there's very many animals that really have the DNA to, to be in that position. But some of them certainly do think that the odds with a fox would be good. But I am watching, I mean, I have skunks and deer and I think that I'm young enough that it, it will happen again. And I don't know that I'll live here for the rest of my life, but I imagine I'll 
always live in a wild place. Friends, friends change one another. I think any any close relationship changes who we are. How did Fox change you? He changed me in so many ways, but mostly I started to copy him. I was watching him so much and that turned into admiration. And so I started to copy him. It made me closer to my own instinct, to nature, to human nature, kind of throwing off this yoke of culture and thinking about actual nature. I mean, our culture is so new, but human nature is hundreds of thousands of years old. I mean, that's how long Homo sapiens have been on the planet, evolving our nature. And our culture, not only is our culture new, but human culture changes just every time you move into a new region. I was fixated on becoming something, trying to find out what I wanted to be, what I was going to do with my PhD. Was I going to be a writer, professor, researcher, continue guiding in the park, be a government worker, a manager? And I realized that foxes don't think about that, that that's not really a very natural thing to think about a title a noun, I realize that you need to characterize yourself by the things you like to do and wanted to do and felt you needed to do by verbs. And I realized that trying to make myself into some noun was the wrong thing. I decided to make myself into a verb, pick the verbs. I want to write. I want to study animals. I want to help speak for animals. Those were things that I wanted to do. And the title that I had didn't really matter. And it definitely he affected my sense of time because I have more of an animal sense of time. I have a sense that we won't, we don't live forever, and time is so much more important that I have to have the right habit and the right habitat for myself. And he was also very friendly, much more friendly than I was. As I said, I think most most animals are are friendlier than humans. Most animals associate with other animals much more so than than we do. And I've certainly started reaching out to other people a lot more because of, of the fox. So he has really, he's had a huge impact I, and he's helped me to, he's made me decide that I'm living here. This is where I want to live. I'm a country mouse and <laughs> I want to live out in the country. Oh, thank you so much for, for speaking to us from this very special place that you live. You're welcome, uh, Sarah. And I hope that I get to meet you someday, either and in I, Australia or here. And I won't touch your hair when we meet one another. We'll, step, we'll, we'll look respectfully <laughs> <laughs> across a fly or, or a game of hide the egg. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.